This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 19th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, news staff writer Kelly Servick joins me to discuss the evolution of COVID care, how doctors treat patients has changed in the year of the pandemic, but how much of the change is based on data. Then I talk with researcher Wesley Reinhardt about using smart materials like self-healing cement and metamaterials that can do math to build smart cities. As we finish out a year of coronavirus pandemic, this week, three news writers writing in science tackled what we've learned about treating the infection. Staff writer Kelly Servick is here to talk about it. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Well, I appreciate you taking time to talk about this with me. It's a pretty complicated story. My big question when I went in was, how in the world did physicians, did doctors decide what to do when they first encountered you know, a SARS-CoV-2 infection? Yeah, I think physicians were asking themselves that question too. Like, what do I do for these patients when we haven't studied what helps them at this point? My colleagues, Jennifer Cousin Frankel and Catherine Matisik and I co-wrote this story. And we sort of asked doctors to reminisce about their first patients and, and what they did. And many doctors also didn't have experience with even just putting on PPE. They had to sort of fumble with their protective gear and, and realize that this wasn't a trial run early on. People were taking what little they knew about the virus to sort of reason their way to treatments. So I spoke to a doctor in Japan who said he got some of the cruise ship patrons from the Diamond Princess come into his hospital, and he pulled out a treatment guideline for a different coronavirus, for the one that causes MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, because that's what they had. New evidence was coming, but the patients were already there. Once the pandemic got going... And science started happening. We started to get about our understanding of what exactly this virus is about. How does a doctor decide what to take on board? You know, there's so much research being done and there's so many patients. I think doctors were really scrambling to take in evidence and it was coming in the form of press releases and preprints and they were saying this might work or actually maybe no or maybe yes, but only for this group of patients. I think the guiding question for a lot of doctors has been, 
does this patient in front of me look like the people who participated in this or that clinical trial? Is there a reason to think that if they benefited, then this person will too, sort of based on their stage of illness, underlying conditions, oxygen needs, markers in their blood, just sort of whatever you can glean? It seemed like the treatment recommendations were always evolving. Has that kind of stabilized now, one year out? It's fair to say that the treatment guidelines are still very much evolving, as I can attest, you know, as we're trying to finish up this story and trying to get new <laughs> new pieces of information <laughs> in up to the very last minute. But I do think that doctors are much more familiar with what COVID does and what it looks like. And that has led to broadly this two-pronged strategy where First, you should try to stop the virus from replicating and and keep people from getting very sick. But when they do, you should shift your attention to the immune system and sort of try to tamp down on inflammation that causes a lot of the damage that we see. And that's where immunosuppressant drugs like dexamethasone, tocilizumab have really sort of risen to the top and proven themselves in large trials. There are some approaches we know now work on patients, at least in clinical trials. Has that success been replicated on the ground in the hospitals? At least in some countries, we know that the number of hospitalized people who are dying of COVID has decreased during the pandemic, and the numbers vary. But recently, a report from U.S. hospitals put mortality rates at, I think, 22 percent last March and around 7 percent by August. So something good happened there. But we have to remember that a lot of things have been fluctuating over the course of the pandemic, not just the treatments that are available, but how much strain there is on the hospitals, the risk factors of the people coming in, even the variants of the viruses that are circulating. So as one doctor told me, it's a big soup. Yeah. In the story, you actually take us through the levels of care, what happens to someone from outpatient to inpatient to even ICU. What happens with outpatients? Someone is COVID positive. What are they supposed to do if they go to a walk-in clinic? For most people, there is nothing magical for them to do, right? They get told fluids, rest, take drugs for pain and fever. My colleague Jennifer did the reporting on the outpatient care, and she heard from doctors that part of their job is just discouraging people from trying things that claim with no evidence that they're going to keep you safe. Right. Like a lot of people want to take vitamins or antibiotics and none of that stuff has really shown itself to be that successful in clinical trials. Yeah. More things have been ruled out than proven. There is one exception, which is monoclonal antibodies seem to potentially prevent people from advancing to severe disease and ending up hospitalized. These are these lab-made proteins that are designed to sort of mimic the body's immune response and, and block the virus from attaching to cells caveats there because this is given as an infusion and you have to go to the hospital or to a special site. That's a barrier for a lot of people. And they also look to be less effective against some of the emerging variants of the virus. Do they know who's likely to turn around after a few days at home and end up back in the hospital? We know that some people are at increased risk of advancing to severe disease, um, including people with certain underlying conditions, obesity, diabetes, older people, But one of the things doctors have learned is that people who appear to be recovering and and appear to be otherwise healthy can also take a turn. So monitoring blood oxygen, checking in with patients has turned out to be really critical. Let's take the next step. Say things get more serious and this COVID positive person needs to be admitted to the hospital. What happens then? What do doctors do for those patients? So this is a point where declining lung function and and low blood oxygen levels will lead many people to get an oxygen mask or those nasal prongs called a cannula. And many people will also get remdesivir, 
Remdesivir is a word that we've heard a lot over the last year. Yeah. It was identified quite early as an antiviral that might help. A big trial sponsored by the National Institutes of Health found that it didn't significantly improve survival, but it might reduce the time that people are in the hospital by several days, which is not nothing. But then a trial from the World Health Organization sort of called even that into question. So I think we can say at this point, this is not as powerful of a a drug as doctors had hoped. Do you think a lot of doctors are administering it nevertheless? I have the sense that it is still very widely used based on some equivocal evidence of potential benefit. So besides an antiviral, what else are patients treated with? So most will also get anticoagulants to fight the potentially deadly blood clots that often come with severe COVID. But there have been some difficult questions about how to use those, when to up the dose as people get sicker. So the last we heard from these three big ongoing trials was that a full dose can help hospitalized people not in the ICU, but they might be actually pretty risky for ICU patients who are sort of waiting to learn from those trials. It really seems like a tough thing to do to try to get really ill people involved in clinical trials in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, you can imagine that when you have a hospital full of people who are deteriorating, your impulse is to give them something that might help and not to convene your institutional review board and draw up a bunch of paperwork and randomize some of them to get a placebo or be in a control group. But that is the way that you learn that something works so that doctors don't have to keep guessing forever. So that was a tension that I think all three of us reporting this story heard come up over and over. And some medical teams decided not to run a randomized trial and they gave something that wasn't proven yet. So let's move to the ICU. You know, a lot of people hear about ventilators. So the idea that you can't breathe on your own anymore and you're going on a ventilator, which is pretty isolating experience. And it's something that's kind of hard to come back from. Yeah, I think certainly in the U.S. last spring, we were having all these terrifying conversations about how many ventilators are there and how fast can we make ventilators? And it started to feel like severe COVID equals ventilator, right? A lot of ICU physicians told me that one of the biggest changes in care was realizing that fewer patients probably needed to be on this most invasive form of oxygen support, which is sometimes very necessary and very life-saving, but like you said, also makes for a very difficult and long recovery sometimes. Yeah. And then something that I learned that I was completely ignorant about is that there are just a lot of knobs to turn on the ventilator. Even once you decide to put someone on it, there are so many ways to modulate the way that you give oxygen, not forcing too much air into the lungs and not damaging them further, making sure the patient isn't distressed, but not sedating them too much. You know, it's hard for a non-specialist like me to grasp like how you do that properly. But I gather that it's fundamental to COVID and it varies how people do it. Wow, there's just so many moving pieces to figuring out how to treat these patients. One bright spot, though, has been dexamethasone. This turns out to be helpful for people that are on ventilation. Yeah, I think this was a big turning point for a lot of doctors last summer when this giant trial in the UK, uh, across many UK hospitals called Recovery, announced that in the sickest patients, people who are on ventilators, dexamethasone cut mortality by about a third compared to usual care. And it also showed some benefits in people who are on oxygen, but not ventilators. So it was a little bit unexpected. This class of drugs, these corticosteroids, they have sort of a spotty history with treating patients with respiratory failure and lung damage. So it was a real victory against a virus that we didn't even know about a year prior to that. 
Are there drugs on the horizon that are going to help at the different stages we're talking about, maybe preventing that virus from taking over or the immune failure or immune amplification? What's going to be next to you know help these patients? I think better antivirals are a big one. And my colleague, John Cohen, had a great interview with Anthony Fauci. I think it was at last month's AAAS meeting where Dr. Fauci said the real therapeutic approach would be a direct antiviral, just knock out the virus in a few days at home. We don't have that. We've tried repurposing drugs we already had, and now there are efforts to design new ones. And to learn about that, actually, you can read Bob Service's very nice story in the March 11th issue. Thank you so much, Kelly. This has been a super interesting story. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Kelly Cervic is a staff news writer for Science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Smart cities rely on streams of data from buildings, transit, so many sources. But can we save bandwidth and energy by using smart materials to do some of the processing in place? Stay tuned for my interview with Wesley Reinhardt about using smart materials to make smarter cities. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Imagine a city made up of living buildings, houses that can sense damage and repair themselves, apartment buildings that can communicate with neighboring structures to balance energy needs. This is the far-off future of smart cities. Wesley Reinhardt and colleagues wrote about the next steps along our journey to smart cities in an insight piece this week in science. Hi, Wesley. Hello. So I started off with this uh, very futuristic sounding smart city, but we have smart cities now. Can you talk about you know, what we think of as a smart city today? Yeah. So a smart city basically uses technology to enhance benefits and diminish shortcomings of urbanization for its citizens. Examples of this might be crowdsourced location data for smart navigation or open platforms for sharing of energy data or even online forums for participation of citizens in policymaking. How is this different from, you know, my position data being uploaded to Google while I'm using their mapping application? One distinction is that in a smart city, you're trying to aggregate data that's associated with different domains. Navigation is an example, but also we talked about energy or governance. And these are different modes of data and different domains, but they're localized within one city. What makes the city smart is basically using all of these different data streams to help policymakers improve quality of life in that city. One of the main points of this article seems to be that you can end up with tons of data. Having many, many things networked can actually be a drag on figuring out what's important and what you need to keep track of. You have just too much data if every square foot of the city is instrumented. So you bring in this idea of not just cloud computing, but fog computing and mist computing. How is uh, fog and mist different from clouds? 
Cloud computing's become kind of a household term these days. And the idea with cloud computing is that you're sending all of your data to sort of a centralized location, maybe a, a data center that has tons and tons of computers, and then they can process the data there and send you back the results. If you're collecting too much data, it can become very burdensome and very energy intensive to just transmit all of that data to that centralized location. The idea with fog computing and mist computing is to do a little bit less communication and a little bit more distributed computing itself. We move some of the computation to smaller devices that are more broadly distributed across our smart city. And that way we don't have to send so much data back to a central location. Okay, so we now are talking about distributed processing, and this is where smart materials come in. What we tried to communicate in this article was the idea of actually embedding the processing and to some extent the communication directly into the material. One example that we gave was self-healing concrete cement that actually includes bacteria that are sensitive to certain changes in the chemistry around them. You don't necessarily need to sense and process and actuate electronically if you have some chemical mechanism. It's very much related to what we were just talking about. If you tried to send like the chemical gradients back to like a cloud computing, you would just get absolutely overwhelmed because there's like millions and, and billions of potential data points there. And instead, the building makes its own call and heals and nobody needs to process this information back at Cloud Computing Central. Exactly. And so it's like even the next level beyond missed computing, where the concrete itself, the molecules in the concrete are doing that processing for you. That's very cool. Although while I was reading that, I was wondering, will the building ever let you know that it's healed itself a bunch of times? It seems like something you might want to keep an eye on. The idea isn't to completely eliminate electronic sensors and electronic processing and decision making. It's really about spreading out the burden and making decisions at the right level and transmitting only the right data that's needed at each level. City scale decision making, like digging a new tunnel and then using macro scale networks in this fog computing model to pass information around between buildings or between neighborhoods. And then you can keep going down to like a mesoscale sensing, which is the idea of detecting the health of like a structure or a structural member in the in the building. And then, you know, you go all the way down to micro scale sensing and response with the, the living concrete example. I really liked your comparison with the nervous system. Our brain does not need to know every time a muscle fiber moves, right? Exactly. And so this is kind of the idea with the living materials is you should know about how maybe the foundation of your building is doing the health of it. And you should know that it's actuating a lot. So you don't want to just ignore structural damage, of course, but the ability of the concrete to respond to some extent on its own, and then also give you a warning sign and say, hey, you should probably do something here. You should shore up this foundation, um, maybe add some additional steel beams or something. But that can happen at a higher level and at a different time scale as well. So that the concrete can just heal as the cracks are forming. And then eventually when the stress becomes too great, your fiber optic strain sensors will kick in and, and send that message back to the cloud computing. 
You also talk about metamaterials that can do math, photonic materials, mechanologic materials. How do those fit into this? You can basically design a system where the response, either mechanically or optically or acoustically, is programmed into the material through its structure. The enabling technology for those is additive manufacturing. Like the optical example, you can build these little silicon chips that diffract light in a programmed way. And you mentioned being able to solve math equations with that. So if you're able to program a mathematical equation into this passive optical scatterer, it means that you can effectively do sensing and control processes with it. The really nice thing about those is that they're effectively passive. They're just operating based on inputs that are already kind of coming into that material. Well, with all this processing outsourced to the materials, what kind of savings do you get? We talked a little bit about saving on communication of this data, moving the data around. What else do you gain by having everything distributed like this? Energy cost for computation and communication is probably the biggest advantage. Of course, there's also reduction in like electronic waste. One thing that we mentioned in the article is the growth of Internet of Things connected devices. And one of the trends is essentially making these devices smaller and cheaper so that they can just proliferate across an entire city. We really like the idea of instead of instrumenting an entire concrete foundation with these little IoT devices that are electronics and maybe using rare metals or non-sustainably sourced metals and maybe things that aren't easy to recycle. Instead of using a thousand or a million of these tiny devices, we can instead actually just kind of imbue the concrete with the ability to sense and respond on its own. We imagine that this is potentially a path to a more sustainable smart city. Another big advantage is reduced latency and improved reliability of these networks because essentially they're not all tied to the same communication channels and they don't have to compete for a bandwidth on these communication channels. If every one of your devices has to communicate through the same telecom network, then you're going to get essentially a traffic jam. And the more instrumented you are, the worse off you are. Of course. In this case, if you have many different modes of communication, some optics, some wireless electronics, and some just like chemical gradients in the concrete, there's not as much competition. We've talked a lot about concrete and healing buildings, but you do have some other examples in this piece. You also talk about photovoltaics. Uh, I gave an example of a solar tracker that was built out of a smart material to improve the efficiency of photovoltaic energy harvesting. What I'm imagining there is combining these mechanologic and optical metamaterials and uh, solar panel, basically, to have a smart solar panel that can track the angle of the sun as it goes across the sky and improve the amount of energy that's harvested by a single panel. This is in the line of an already existing area of research on self-actuated uh, smart facades for buildings for shading. This is a really interesting example of trying to build the micro scale structure of a material that can then influence the macro scale deformation of, for instance, a, a shade on the exterior of an office building. As the sun is 
beating down in the middle of the day, it causes some change in the uh, microstructure of the material and something might unfurl and basically cover up uh, a window. This is an example of something where the sensing and the actuation are all kind of built into the material in a passive manner. Maybe to people like me and some of the listeners, a concrete building healing itself sounds pretty out there. But you've been thinking about this for a while. What do you see as some of the wilder implications of putting this technology into use? I mentioned this idea of the smart city using technology to improve the well-being of its citizens. We can imagine using technology imbued in our materials all the way from the entire city scale to the building scale and down to an individual apartment and have materials that can keep us at a comfortable temperature, keep the air quality good and safe. We can have the foundations heal and and monitor their own health and make sure that we don't have infrastructure collapsing on us. And I think another thing that's really important about these smart materials and in general, the ability to imbue more and more intelligence in our materials is the possibility of improving the sustainability and lifetime of those materials, really reducing the environmental footprint of new construction, which is actually right now a large portion of our CO2 emissions. As a homeowner, and I bought an old house, you know, I'm walking across the floors and I feel like there's a little bit of a tilt and I just wish my house would fix itself. Is that where we're going? I think it is. And I think it's an example that sounds a little simple or a little obvious, but I think <laughs> yeah. I think it's important and I think it's something that you can see. The even more exciting thing to me is that there's things you can't see that are wrong with your house. Oh, please, I, yes, I know. <laughs> These smart materials would, would really give us a way for the house to take care of those things on, on its own because, you know, you don't have your house instrumented with Internet of Things sensors in the walls and the foundations and the roof. And these smart materials that can monitor themselves and understand their environment and actually respond to their environment would make it so that when you moved into your older home, it didn't feel old, right? It was updating itself yesterday. Well, the architecture would stay old, but it wouldn't have lead in the water. Exactly. (laughs) That's what I want. Yeah. So the pipes wouldn't be made of lead anymore. And, uh, There would be no asbestos in any of the tiles. Right. And you could even imagine like the pipes being made of metamaterials that would be able to detect lead or other contaminants and filter it out. Or if it can't filter it out to send some kind of alert to your smart home device. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Wesley. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Wesley Reinhardt is an assistant professor in the Department of Material Science and Engineering and the Institute for Computational and Data Science at Pennsylvania State University. You can find a link to the insight we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. 
on behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.